This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends. Rob Orman here. You are listening to the show where we break down strategies, ideas, and tactics to live and work with intent. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a certified executive coach, help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, career quagmires, leadership challenges, maladaptive habits, and behaviors. If you want to learn more about what we do or sign up for a free coaching discovery session to get clarity on your challenges and goals, you can find it all at our website, roborman.com. Today's show is a co-production with my good friend, Scott Weingart, purveyor of the MCRIT podcast that I know many of you listen to and on Deeper Reflection. Every few months, Scott and I jointly host the Deeper Stimulus Book Club. And since the book club is capped at 40 people, not everyone can attend. And when I say attend, I mean virtually. We do it over Zoom. So we do this recap pod a few weeks after each book club, and we bring in some of the discussion points from the community. And the discussions are really what make the book clubs fun. And I encourage all of you to attend, should you have the inclination, because it's a good chance for us to meet you and for you to meet each other. To get tickets, which are free of charge, but go quickly, you've got to be on the mailing list. The book clubs are no longer announced publicly, just via newsletter. And if you are not already on said mailing list slash newsletter list, there's about seven places on the website where you can make it happen. All right, here we go with our breakdown, discussion, and review of our most recent book selection, Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. And I started rolling tape before the actual podcast recording, but I thought, you know, I kind of like what we have here in the intro. Has nothing to do with tiny habits, but I couldn't in my heart of hearts delete it. Should we talk about your Marvel Comics alter ego? <laughs> I don't think that. <laughs> I don't know how that would work, but I'm in your hands. We can talk about anything you want. Scott and I were talking the other day about our favorite Marvel Comics heroes. And your number one was Doctor Strange. Yep. I'd say that's true. Which I thought was really revealing because you are Doctor Strange. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. First off, goatee, highly skilled physician, pursues mastery, is a smart ass, iconoclast, easily frustrated by the slowness and seeming incompetence of those around him. It's hey, hey, baby, if you're going to be Dr. Strange, you take, you take, yeah, the, no, I'll the take good the good with the, the bad. Yeah, edges. no, initially brash and arrogant, perhaps gaining some small amount of mindfulness as life goes on. You're a day old muffin, baby. <laughs> you are just crusty on the outside and soft and warm and loving on the inside. You're <laughs> so if there's like a day old muffin, Dr. Strange bobblehead. I think we nailed it. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Now, your number one was Daredevil, though you don't feel you identify as much, though I see more similarities than you do. Daredevil, Iron Man, Thor, those are my yeah. ones that I, I, no, I no, love. But choices. yeah, Daredevil was definitely the number one. I'm not sure it was, it was about Daredevil, but I don't see the similarity. No, a, a deep intrinsic good, you know, slightly covered by sarcasm and humor. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I could see it. I could see it. I think most of your listeners will as well. All right, Dr. Stephen Strange. So we're going to talk about Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg. This was the book for our Deeper Stimulus Book Club 
recently, so kind of combining our two communities into one mega community. Should we start off with Maui Habit or Coffee Stretch? What do you think? <laughs> Whichever way you want to go. I will put as a preface, I wasn't a huge fan of this book going into the book club, and I think the book club made me even less a fan afterward. <laughs> wow. You just way to not bury the lead there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. I just, well, let me start off with a tiny habit success story. <laughs> so, and then we'll get to why you don't love this. So we're going to get into the methodology of tiny habits, why it would be worthy of derision, but also why it may be worthy of praise. So this tiny habit success story is an offhand comment by a client at the end of a session. And this wasn't the reason that we were doing coaching. It was just kind of said, hey, man, oh, you know what? I really wish I could get my stretching dialed in. Like this came out of nowhere. <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And I, I had this tiny habits geyser of excitement <laughs> about to erupt. So I went through the tiny habits method with him. And so my first question was, all right, when do you want to stretch? Says in the morning. All right. What activities do you do in the morning? I get up, I brush my teeth, I make coffee, etc. All right, so which one of those would have a good physical and mental space for 10 seconds of stretching? It's like, oh, you know what, making coffee. Making coffee because there's like a chair next to the coffee I could put my leg on while the coffee's brewing. So we went through this whole process of making coffee. And then we found the trailing edge of the coffee, the very last thing that happens before waiting for it to brew. And that was pressing the button and hearing the process start, hearing the, the I don't know, was it the or the word, whatever it is. So that start, the pressing the button and hearing the sound became the anchor. And the waiting period for the coffee to brew, that was the stretch interval. He put a chair next to the coffee maker, put his foot on the chair, hamstring stretch. And at the end of it, the reward, a splendid cup of coffee. You know, you, you encompass so much of the book in that story. It's a great story. Are you going to break down the individual pieces that you've just gone through? And also some of the stuff that came up in our book club. I, I can't wait. All right. So tiny habits. I mean, there's so many books written on habits and some are more loved than <laughs> others as it turns out, but have a similar framework. Absolutely. And the thing I really liked about this book was the approachability. I've read other habits books and, you know, they're, they just felt a little less huggable. <laughs> little, I little will give you that. It, it was a huggable book. Yeah. It was, I, you know, I love the diagrams and kind of the simplicity, but the simplicity may also be uh, ill of this, but let's get to how you do it. So really this starts with a new behavior that you want to do. That's the, an aspiration. And so for my client, let's just use this coffee stretch here. In this instance, it was, and is still is to be more flexible. And the habit starts tiny because that's much more likely to happen than something that's grand or involved or protracted. So stretching while coffee brewing is more likely to happen than it's like, okay, I'm going to start a 30-minute yoga routine each morning. Now you can get there, you can get to your 30-minute yoga routine, but it's harder to start there. So the tiny habit is not bombastic. It's not sexy. It's not fanfare. It's small, but it's the traction. It's the first step. The tiny habit gets baked in by a three-step process. The anchor moment, 
the new behavior or habit, and then the celebration. Let's break those down and start with the anchor moment. The anchor making coffee, for example, that is the trigger or the reminder for you to do the new action or behavior. And what works best, or at least by the premise of this book, is something you already do or already happens, like making coffee, brushing your teeth, arriving at work, getting a text or phone call. And the more specific, the more detailed the anchor, the better to tie it to the behavior. And something BJ Fogg focuses on in the book. And I will say that, you know, whether you're a fan of this book or not, I think that this is absolute brilliance is the trailing edge. Using not the the whole anchor or the whole process or the whole event, but the very last minute of it. So for example, making coffee is a general thing. It's a big thing. It's a multi-step event. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The trailing edge in this case was the very specific moment of pressing the button and hearing the whirring noise. So other examples of a trailing edge, washing dishes, specific trailing edge, hanging up the dish tail, a general arriving at work, specific, turning off your car, which we use an existing event or habit to connect the new behavior to, but it can take a while to find a good one, a good prompt. All these things can take a while and things to consider are Location, does this prompt happen in a place where it makes sense to do the new behavior? And I think that time matters too. You know, does it make sense to do this behavior at the moment of the day when the behavior is more likely or makes sense? Yeah, you know, this is the one I'll give to Fog. And this is, you know, one thing I appreciate. And I think most people in the habit world would absolutely agree that this was a real win is this chain behavior idea that if you have an established pattern of behavior you might as well hang on to it as much as you can because it's already been established as a trigger so i absolutely give it to you rob i'm totally in agreement the anchor is key well, I'm going to say I'm not here to defend BJ Fogg, so I'm going to just totally... Wait, I thought you were working that. as BJ Fogg's press agent. Uh, I did it? pick the book, however, <laughs> and you're making me pay for it. <laughs> so, so we've got our anchor. Next is the new tiny behavior. We've got our aspiration like to be flexible. I want to be, I want to be able to do the splits, right? So there's a, the first one. Or I want to write for an hour a day or whatever, but taking a big bite, it's, it's onerous, right? It can make it harder to do. So it's just like any journey. You start with the first step. Do something small that is a, just a little fragment of the bigger aspiration. So for example, say your aspiration is to meditate for half an hour each day. The tiny behavior, take one deep breath. Then we tie the tiny behavior to the anchor moment immediately after the anchor moment. So in the example of the coffee stretch, it was press a button, the whirring sounds, new behavior immediately happens. You know, and again, I don't dispute any of that. It makes complete sense. Now it becomes farcical when you first read it because he'll say something like, if you want to develop the habit of flossing, and seemingly there are people in the world, Rob, that don't already have the habit of flossing. And I, I hesitate to imagine the poor uh, people that have to kiss those people. And as my dentist used to have as a sign in his office, you don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. Having worked at my dad's <laughs> dental office uh, for many a summer, I could say, if you're not already flossing, please buy whatever book it takes to get you flossing. But um, <laughs> he, 
he would advocate flossing one tooth, which on its surface yeah. seems crazy. But the key psychological understanding is that a habit must first be established before it could be optimized. And so if you could spend a month flossing one tooth, your likelihood of flossing all your teeth dramatically goes up. So I will give him this as well. All right. We're two. I mean, what are we batting right now? 666. Well, I mean, I'm gonna, this is, I, I like celebration too. Uh, later on, we'll get to where I, I have. Yeah. And, I, and, you know what, and I think later on it is worthy of derision, but I, I think our community really came through here yeah. and, yep. and I've been framed it for me in a way that, cause I've had trouble actually, you know, scaling this, but that's what we'll get to. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll get to that. So yes, the, the celebration, and this is how it sticks. The third and most often neglected step, I think, is instant celebration, something you do to create positive emotions, like saying, I did a good job, or having the sip of coffee after the stretch. You celebrate immediately after doing the new tiny behavior. And the idea here is that if there's no reward, it's less likely the behavior will bake in, right? I mean, it's just kind of using your reward brain wiring and neurotransmitters. And the celebration really needs to be personal because what makes us feel good, it's not universal, right? And it can be hard to find a good celebration. And another thing that I love in this book is the description of knowing when you've got the right celebration is that it creates a feeling of shine. And what does shine feel like? So let's say you've tried for something that's really hard to get, like, you know, getting a job or a certain position or a grant or whatever. And you get the example he uses, you get the email with the result and you open it up. And the first thing it says is, congratulations. How do you feel then? Boom. That is shine. So examples of you know, little rewards or, you know, a smile, a fist bump, a thumbs up. Imagine the roar of the crowd. I still find celebration to be the hardest part of this. We were talking in my, my last episode on silencing your inner critic. And, you know, some of this is really replacing it with a, you know, that wiser self is that it can be hard to believe that. And there's the idea of distance self-talk is like talking about yourself and the third person in your mind. And the, that reason is that it can be hard to believe yourself or it can be hard to have that space. And it's the same thing here that making the reward it's like, ah, this just, just feels a little disingenuous. You know, it, it's so funny because if I got that grant award, that would not be shine at all. Um, <laughs> would it be dread that you had to then do No, no. And uh, this might be idiosyncratic to me, though I think there are probably people like me. It, for me, it's the striving where the reward is. And then there's a, usually a letdown when I actually achieve the thing. It almost feels... Like it never lives up to the actual pursuit. And I think that's one of my problems with this book is the celebrations that I think actually work for someone like me. And I think many people may resonate with this are the ones that are intrinsically rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, you know, one change I made when I had first read uh, this book the first time around before the book club uh, occurred was uh, I wanted to get sun. Uh, in the morning because it has excellent circadian effects and, you know, really uh, manifest effect on the rest of your day if you just have a couple of minutes of sunlight early in the morning. Um, but I would just forget. And so I did link it up to making coffee. Making coffee, you know, is a pro-typical link for any ED doc. We all do it. It's all an omnipresent part of our life. 
And uh, as I was waiting for the water to boil, I would just go outside, regardless of the weather, um, and just find the sun for a few minutes. Luckily, that celebration is intrinsic to the activity itself. And those always work, you know, if the activity itself is celebratory. For me, you know, giving myself a high five just doesn't cut it. Now, everyone's <laughs> celebration is going to be a little different. And this is what you alluded to is the difficulty of finding the right celebration. Um, but most of the celebrations, if they weren't intrinsic, did not resonate with me. We'll talk at probably towards the end of the podcast about anti-celebration. And maybe those are more effective for people like me. I'm with you and not with you on some of those things. I think that intrinsic reward is is the key. And actually, a after the book club, when I first heard about you talking about your sunshine exposure in the morning, I started doing that, right? I throw the ball for our dog right after I get up. Uh, the way our house is set up, there's just like a little corner of driveway that like it's a uh, an isosceles triangle of sun that's probably about <laughs> you know, five feet at the base. And so I I started standing in there throwing them the ball, you're getting the reward of being in the sun at that moment. And there's not anything where you have to create like, yes, or fist bump or self high five. Those just don't, for me, have shine. But the thing about opening that email and such, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just, you can pick any analogous situation there, you know, whatever it is, whether it's intrinsic or whether it's extrinsic, we, you know, we've had both of our kids go through the college process over the past few years. And, you know, you open those letters when you've got some expectation, you're looking over the kid's shoulder, you know, I mean, I'm tearing up. They're just oh, tearing up. well, no, so you've hit on something very real. So I take a thousand fold more joy in the accomplishments of my kid than I ever would in any culmination of any accomplishment I've ever done in my life. For you and me, external achievement. Let's say we won an Academy Award for our shows, you know, ridiculous. Be like, all right, well, that's just some people's opinion that happen right. to be voting for this. Yes, I, yes. Actually, I actually don't care. Exactly, <laughs> don't you don't put care. your finger on it. Like, And when you listen to someone like Rob Rodriguez, who's one of my all-time favorite directors to have a philosophy on this, you could hear absolutely, yeah, it's, it's bonus to get the awards. He does not give a shit. It's the process intrinsically derived of, was this good work? Did he do Dust Till Dawn? Yeah. I feel that movie does not get the credit it deserves. It's just like this super interesting and like genre creating masterpiece. Absolutely right. Okay. We digress. <laughs> As we are often want to do. In the best possible way. Yes. All right. So there's our basic setup. Anchor, tiny habit, celebration, but how the sausage gets made, how the sequence gets figured out. It's a little bit more involved. Here's what I mean. The first part of this is to really get clear on what your aspiration actually is. So let's say we've got a big one, a really big aspiration, common among a lot of docs, common among a lot of the people who will be listening to this, even if they're not docs, is to find more joy at work, right? So big aspiration. Awesome. The next part by this model is to come up with a bunch of specific behaviors that can help you achieve your aspiration. And... What he labels this or calls this is the behavior swarm. The behavior swarm is multiple different behaviors that can potentially fulfill that aspiration. And his recommendation is you go crazy here. It's a swarm. It's not an anemic few. So the swarm might include, as we're looking at you know, finding more joy at work, thanking my patients after each encounter, being open to gratitude, learning something new before each shift, finishing my charts by the end of my shift, cutting back my number of shifts, doing some sort of pregame, doing some sort of postgame, 
taking a scheduled break every four hours. There's, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer for the swarm. It's a swarm. It is just a brain dump. The way that he does it is just like, you know, write the things that are silly, the things that are not silly. My, my brain has a hard time going to like the hundred different ideas. It's like, okay, here's the eight. Which one do we want to dig into more or, or, or something of the sort? What's your take on the swarm? Yeah, I think this is fantastic. It's it's just lifestyle experimentation, and I, I think it's the way to go. Uh, you will not be able to predict which things actually stick. And we're really bad at figuring out what actually gives us joy or happiness. Um, so, you know, just broad-based gamification and experimentation is definitely the way to go. All of this is iterative. You know, you think like, okay, I got to lock it in. No, because you're going to just stumble and fall on your face with this stuff. And that's great because these are small bets. It is such low stakes <laughs> to try these things. And this gets to the third part of the new behavior is assessing the swarm, looking for golden behaviors. And those are things that are both very effective in helping me achieve my aspiration, which is hard to know. As, as you just said, it's like, I don't know, will it or not? I have to try it. So it's just kind of a guess and things that you can get yourself to do. And whatever meets both of those criteria that, you know, that it might be effective, I'd say might be, not will be. So maybe it'll be effective and that you'll actually do. I think that's the more important yep. Yep. one that you'll actually do. Those are the things to try. Those are the tiny habits to try. Because actually, as I say this and think about that swarm, everything you wrote down came from your mind to be like, here's something that might actually help. And you know, some of them might be seem far-fetched, but you never know which one of those things that are far-fetched that are actually going to get traction and work for you and bring that joy and increase your dopamine and serotonin levels and, and do X, Y, Z. So I'd say the actual, actually do it holds more weight than what your perceived future effectiveness is. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And then you begin tiny. So you pick the anchor and the behavior after X, I will Y after I stand up from my stool I will thank the patient for coming in and celebrate, <laughs> raise up my arms and give myself a high five. Well, yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're reaching for what the celebration is, is one of my issues with this methodology. Unless there is an intrinsic immediate hit of reward hormone, you know, then fine. Uh, then I think it'll work. If on the other hand, you have to convince yourself, well, this eventually is going to reap benefits. It's going to be tougher to make that link. And as we're going to get to in a moment, talking about what worked with our community, it's all intrinsic reward. Like in the, in the book, he talks about having a piece of chocolate and all these things like not working for me. So you, you have definitely convinced me that intrinsic reward or at least clearly sequenced award, reward, like drinking the coffee afterwards, which is not intrinsic to the stretching, but it's part of the actual process rather than, okay, here's some, some extra thing I need to add on and fabricate as part of it. Well, okay. So, you know, what you just said in defense, though he never said it in the book, I am a big fan of temptation linking. And this is not my idea. I believe it was Milkman out of uh, Warden. Her idea was that if there already are things that are celebratory in your life, then linking a habit to them, as opposed to needing a celebration now, and it, it's somewhat, you know, self-denying, but remarkably effective. So for instance, if you did have a chocolate every night after dinner and you told yeah. yourself, I'm not going to have the chocolate unless I do two minutes of meditation, oh, then okay. it's, that's what I meant earlier by anti-celebration. And it, it kind okay. of is mean to yourself. 
And, you know, all, all rewards when inverted are punishments, like we know this from the business world, and bonuses are just penalties in another name, but that can be remarkably effective. So if you already have a behavior which is joyful, but maybe not the most wonderful thing in your life, linking that to a habit necessity could be markedly effective. And as there is a balance here, and this is this comes up in the book a lot. And you know, as I was saying in the beginning, one thing I like about it is its approachability, and it's 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 a really fun book. And his recommendation repeatedly is to make it fun, because otherwise, for you know, it's just another thing to do, or a burden to carry, or some a way to castigate yourself for not measuring up to what you're trying to do. So start small. The stakes are low. You know, I'm I'm gonna do a a half a push up and then laugh about it or something, and it's just you know there's little risk of self psychological harm. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, you had you had told the story during the book club of your iPad usage and and what you did with that, and I think that's a remarkable example of this temptation link. And why don't you why don't you tell that story, Rob? We'll get back to that story in just a moment, but first I want to take a break and let you know about our new Patreon page. If you find value in the show and want to show a little love, keep the wind in the sails, and really help us grow, our Patreon page is where you can support Stimulus at the high five, neon, and quarter century levels. So those monikers probably make no sense to you, but they are explained on the Patreon page. See what just happened there? See, it was like a little bit of mystery just to keep it spicy. And even though we've just started with Patreon, several of you have already joined as members. And I want to say thank you for that. It means a lot. We will have a link to the Patreon page in the show notes, both on your podcatcher and on the website. All right, let's get back to the show where Scott and I had just started talking about how I limited habitual use or actually overuse, I'd say, of my iPad. Here we go. I had or have a total addiction to my iPad. There were certain sites that I would go to, I'd check on soccer scores, look at the cycling. Look at the, it, was just, it was a habit, total habit. And it was just so beautiful to behold and so nice to scroll. And I would do the same things over and over and then find myself doing the same searches over and over in the same looking session. And then I would just, you know, walk out in the room and I'd find myself holding the thing and I didn't, hadn't even realized that I was going out to get it. And so when we look at the things that make an action more likely to happen, there's motivation and then there's ease of doing it. So with something like that, motivation is high and it's probably going to remain high unless there's like an anti-abuse equivalent of it. Or, <laughs> or something. I can shock you after 10 minutes. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So there's high motivation and then there's high ease of use, right? It's so easy to turn on and it's just right there and it's just big and inviting. So I wasn't going to be able to decrease my motivation. I, the only thing that I was going to be able to do was to decrease the ease of use or ease of access. So as I was thinking about this, looking at the, the kind of the behavioral aspect of it, what are things that I have to use my iPad for, right? That's like, I cannot use anything else. I can't use my laptop. I can't use anything. And it was using it on my bike trainer, right? That's how I interface with Zwift, my bike training program. So 
that's in the garage. So I took my iPad in the garage, plugged into the bike trainer, and that's where it sits. It sits on my bike. Now, don't have my iPad to watch shows, which is probably good so that I'm more intentional about watching TV. Although now I'm watching a Formula One late at night. And it decreased my use of the iPad 95%. And so wasting less time. And I definitely did consider it time wasted and I could not get out of that loop. Absolutely. No, it's great. Look, this book, and I do recommend reading this book. This book, I think, is the best book on tiny habits. And that is both the the plus and the minus of this book. Like, I'll give you another example for me of a tiny habit that was really beneficial to my life. Now, I hope no one uh, gets offended by me discussing my ablutions, but I actually like bathing rather than showers at night. I'm a huge <laughs> fan. Um, I'm very Japanese in this regard. You know, I'll rinse off in the shower first, and then I like just soaking in the tub and reading a book on the waterproof Kindle, which is the most life-changing innovation in tech that I've come across. And what I realized late at night is when you get to the point where you're sleepy, you just want to drift off to sleep. But if you haven't brushed your teeth yet, it's a real fuckery because you have to get up and you have to do a jarring activity that wakes you up. And so I wanted to get in the habit of brushing my teeth before I was actually tired. And what I realized is like, I should just link that to bathing. And I just started leaving my electric toothbrush next to the soap dish in the bathtub, you know, directly as a result of the things from this book. And, you know, there's some intrinsic reward as well, uh, short term, because, you know, it feels good to have a clean mouth, right? We all like a clean mouth. But Long-term, life became markedly better. And so after you do that for a little while with the minor celebration, it does become linked to a habit that then is just locked into your life. And so that's a tiny habit that really made life better. I'm questioning whether this book is really the one for extending those tiny habits to big habits. And I'd love to hear what you think about that, Rob. Uh, yes, I have many thoughts on this, even more so after hearing from our community, which is, I mean, it's, it's like this mastermind yeah, of, it was I mean, fantastic. It was a great book club. So incredible. Where do you spit the toothpaste? Okay, well, I mean, now we're really going nitty gritty. But so I always <laughs> so, have a can of seltzer with me that I, I drink while I'm in the bath. Uh -huh. And um, after you pour that can of seltzer into a uh, insulated glass full of ice, well, that's the perfect place to spit your toothpaste. <laughs> All right. Deep. This is deep into... <laughs> Yeah, let's get to scaling it. How do you transition from a tiny habit to a large habit? Like we were talking about before, joy at work is your aspiration. And then you start with this tiny little thing. And maybe that tiny little thing gets you there, but it's really, it's probably going to be just the first step. And you can only do one thing at a time, right? It's not like the metaphor I love for things like this is the guy who was spinning plates on the Ed Sullivan show. He'd be like spinning 16 plates in, in the air at one time and he put them up one at a time. And so you got to always start with the first step. And I thought Lon Setnick put this really nicely is that the engagement of the tiny habits opens the door to possibility. Because looking at it's like, oh, I have this aspirational behavior. It's just, it's just too big. It's too big. Like, all right, I'll start tiny. It's like, whoa, change is possible. So it gets you a little activation energy. You're, you're all potential energy and you're so stuck. You can't get kinetic. Here's just a little push that, yeah, all right, here's a little dopamine for you. Things can work out. Yeah, I had a, a similar uh, market reaction to Lon's comment because it didn't really make sense to me why this book was even necessary to a large extent. And then after his comment, what I realized is if you already have a growth mindset, this book will not be as effective. But if you have a fixed mindset, you know, this is the, uh, the Dweck idea 
of some people just don't believe they could change, then this book will be maybe life-changing for you. And that's, that was Lon's comment, is the tiny changes force people into a growth mindset. They realize that their life can be altered and therefore can make iterative improvement. I don't fully agree with that mm. because I, I think that, you know, even if you have a growth mindset, you might not know methodology of how do I adopt a new habit? I don't even know. I mean, just like start doing it. Well, yeah, I guess I could start doing it. But this, I think, gives you a framework of here's an easy way to do it. Here are specific steps and feel free to fail. That's fine. That's that's expected. And then just keep trying, keep iterating Yes, the growth and fixed mindset, that, that can be an aspect of it. But I think even with a growth mindset, I think this might even have more horsepower because I am ready to grow. I just don't know how to do it. Yeah, look, I'll give you that. And like I say, it's worth a read. I will say, uh, and you know my personal favorite on the habit book um, list is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I think the book is really more applicable to large behavioral change rather than tiny habits, even though it does start on a, a very small approach. And I think the the major thing that Fogg doesn't mention that really is stressed by clear is that first you need to decide the identity change mm, that you yeah. want. And so clear would tell you that it's not, I want to have a habit of meditating for 20 minutes a day. Yeah, that that's the methodology. But the, the thing is, the identity is I want to be a meditator, and, and, or I want to be a writer, or I want to be a happy person. Look, don't get me wrong, Fogg mentions this, but it was not the major focus of the book. And having the identity, and then, you know, and I, I hope I'm not putting words in James Clear's mouth, but faking it until you make it internally it's fine. Like bragging about it as you fake it is garbage, and it will make you look like an <laughs> idiot. But internally saying... I'm a meditator, so I'm going to meditate for an, a minute today, even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to do at least a minute, you know, and then adopting Fogg's methodology from then on, I think is a much more powerful thing than simply saying, I'm going to meditate for a minute a day. And that was one thing that I think was really lacking is that idea that identity is what changes us. I think that there's many pathways here. And it makes me think of one of our community members who was a smoker. And I think it was just stuck in smoking and didn't really see themselves as like, okay, I am a non-smoker. <laughs> they just, they said, I need to put some kind of barrier between myself and reflexive smoking. So what they started doing was they made a habit of walking around the block before the first cigarette of the day. So there was just one barrier. And then they started walking more and more and more around the block. And then a year and a half later, ran a half marathon. They were way fitter, much healthier. And so I think that identity is like the direct path. Mm. There's also other paths. It's like, I don't really know what I want to be or where I want to be. I'm aspirational that I want to maybe start doing this thing. Let me just start small and see where I go with this. And I feel like the smoking and the walking was part of that. Not that I have a bigger identity as something else. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I agree. The other thing I'd push back on a little bit, and again, to give Fogg credit, he does mention this, but it's in passing, is so much of behavioral change. And, and people really believe and, and beat themselves up that when they want to change their identity to be a healthy eater and then can't resist eating the Twinkies in the cupboard, that that's somehow a loss of their willpower and a, a mark against them. And 
the people who demonstrate the most willpower are not at the point of going against the identity you want to establish. It's earlier in the process of not buying the Twinkies in the first place. And so much, I think, of behavioral change comes from not putting us in a situation where willpower ever has to win because willpower will rarely win in the exact circumstance where it's hard to make that change in the first place. We, I think, criticize ourselves because we feel that we don't have the discipline or the willpower to do things. I hear clients say this regularly, and it's actually great when it comes up. Ah, you know, I just didn't have the discipline to do this. Well, this is not a matter of discipline or willpower. This is a matter of structure. Yep. This is a matter of structuring it so that it just happens. You know, if you rely on willpower, such as, I figure I'll work out at some point during the day. <laughs> okay, so maybe it will, maybe it won't happen. You know, your willpower endurance or your you know decision-making endurance is going to be much lower at the end of the day, et cetera. But it's like, if it's structured, if it's planned, as you say, then it has nothing to do with that. So that's just not the secret sauce, but that is secret sauce. Absolutely. Is there anything else we should hit, Rob? The pull-up. So many people had the pull-up habit. Yep. And- it was like one person said it and then everyone's raising their hands like, yes, I do this. So having a pull-up bar in a room that you walk into or out of. And so whenever you walk out of that room, anchor, you do the pull-up, tiny habit. I guess a tiny habit would be a pull-up a pull and then you just do pull-ups. And then it is an intrinsic reward because you just feel great. Yeah. Well, I go a step further because I, 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 there was a point where I was doing this, a pull up every time I passed the threshold of the door with it. The intrinsic reward, again, for these people who practice self-denial is how sore your muscles get after you have gone for <laughs> far into the day doing those pull-ups and the misery of it, it actually is its own reward. And I, I look, anyone who works out understands the huge difference between being told that you have a, uh, a growth in your arm and feeling the pain of it versus the pain the day after a workout, even though the pain is identical. And in one case, it is dread-inducing. In the other one, you love it. And you actually punch yourself in the arm to actually feel the soreness all the more. And it's just a, the psychological difference of perception. I thought Hoodie, I think this is how you pronounce his name, had a really cool one about documenting EKGs. Mm. He was saying, oh yeah, at the end of the shift, we've got to document all these EKGs and it's just, oh my God, it's just such a pain and it's really kind of burning me. And so he made the tiny habit of documenting an EKG on one patient during the shift. And he used a visual cue of the red notice on the patient's EMR as the anchor, documenting one EKG as his tiny habit and then watching the red notice turn to blue on the EMR as the reward. And it's kind of the, uh, you know, you're sort of getting it before. It's like the removal of torture. <laughs> it's like makes you feel good as the reward baked into it. Oh, well, you know, it, it is that, but there's an additional bonus that we've found in a lot of the uh, apps that are now available for people's smartphones. And there is this psychological concept of streak perception. Like not breaking the chain. Not breaking the chain, but visually yeah. not breaking the chain. And what he was alluding to, and you mentioned it, Rob, is like he wants to see all blues down his EMR. You know, when he does an EKG, yeah. turns from red to blue, um, those visual markers are really key. And that can be a celebration that really works. So there's a bunch of habit apps out there that you could actually see the chain you mentioned. And, you know, it, it shows you like you've done this for seven days. If you fuck it up today, you got to start all over again and seeing how far you could get. And that, that's what that story resonated with me when I heard it. There's one about standing in the grocery line and having negative emotions. I don't know if it was you. Yeah, that was I, me. I can't remember. Okay, all right, so yeah. Well, what, what, 
Talk about it. Yeah, so the, you know th- this came up in two separate ways. The, the grocery line, uh, where I, I find a lot of frustration just with the people in front of me, uh, and then especially when driving, um, you know. And in both of those cases, it, it's a real, it's a negative emotion. It, it puts you in a bad place, and the mindfulness of it allows a uh, real sense of gratitude. In the case of the grocery line, you know, uh, I'm I'm so happy that. Uh, I, I am relaxed enough in my general life that it doesn't really matter that I, uh, I you know, I'm going to wait an extra two minutes at groceries. And I, I wish the people in front of me love. You know, this is very similar to the Buddhist meta meditation that you and I both subscribe to, Rob. And, um, and then it's an intrinsic celebration. And so that prompt, the prompting of that negative emotion, is, as long as you become aware of it, and the, the behavioral change of, of wishing well to this person that, that could, in the past life, induce some hatred, um, it, it has intrinsic <laughs> celebration. And then in the car, um, you know, you just use that fundamental attribution that, you know, you and I mention all the time. And every time someone cuts you off in traffic or does something stupid, just imagine uh, that they just got a call that their kid's in the ED. And that's why they're acting like such an idiot in their car is because they're rushing to, you know, have a situation that all of us would probably drive like a dick. And, you know, just giving them that probably in most cases, imaginary benefit of the doubt immediately rewards you with a sense of relaxation and intrinsic celebration. I didn't tell you this, but this is an upcoming stimulus is diving into fundamental attribution One error. One of my favorite psychological biases, so I can't wait. You know, one habit that I've never seen a doc actually adopt, and I'm going to tell you, man, I was an airway checklist evangelist, never used a full airway checklist in my life because I had it there on my airway tray. And it's like, I'm trying to freaking innovate here. There's like three things on here that I'm going to follow every time. And the rest of it's like, okay, I, if I get to it, I get to it. I don't think any experienced person needs an airway checklist. And yet you all should be doing airway checklists because it has a remarkably beneficial effect on your team. It will have salutary effects on you the one time your bandwidth is actually fully loaded because of a patient with like 100 things going on. That's when you're going to forget. And that's when doing a thousand checklists you didn't need will make the all the difference for that one patient. Um, but if left to our own devices, we all do the same thing. We wouldn't do the airway checklist. Um, the key on that, and again, this is changing the environment rather than you know the classic fog method, is we we gave it to the nurses rather than allowing the docs to decide whether they wanted to do the checklist or not. Because um, in general, nurses, if you tell them this has to be done, they'll get it done, while docs are more iconoclastic and kind of uh, think they could go their own way. And so I know intrinsically that I will not do the airway checklist every time if left to my own devices. I'll start cutting corners. So again, it, that's an environment. I mean, it's it's using people as the environment, but anything you could do to make environmental change really eliminates that activation energy necessary to make a habit. You know, you and I have both talked about it. If you want to remember to bring your bag on a really important trip, you stick the bag in front of the front door so you can't get out of the house without taking the bag. That, that eliminates all of the tiny habit necessity of having to build uh, all the other steps. You just make it impossible not to do the task. Either have to have high motivation or high ease of doing it. And in this situation, motivation cannot be lower. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so as you said, iconoclastic, resistant, uh, et cetera, physici- physicians. And so if that's low, then ease of doing it must be so extremely high. And that means that someone else has to do it. Yep. Uh, because it ain't going to get easier for the physician to do it unless, I mean, it just, it just isn't. I don't, I, I don't know that it's possible unless you make a penalty for not doing it. Oh, penalties don't work. We, we know this very no, well. Exactly. Um, Dan Pinker's work will tell you that. So yes, it, you, you have to make it impossible not to do it. 
Dude, you name drop like Dennis Miller. I mean, it is incredible. Just the Rolodex of <laughs> author names that you, that you remember. I barely remember this one. I picked the freaking book for the book club. All right. Well, as we roll it out and roll it up, Scotty, next book is yours and is one of our personal favorites. What are we doing next time? We're doing The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin, who has achieved mastery in multiple domains throughout his life. And this book, it really is not an easy read, I think, but there's a lot of deep complexity that really bears speaking about and thinking about. And I think it's going to be an amazing book club. And if you want to be part of the next book club, and you should, because the two we've done have been friggin' amazing. You better join both our mailing lists because at this stage of the game, that's how you're going to hear about it first. Last time we said we're going to do early release on our on our mailing list, and then we'll open the general public next day, and then within an hour off the mailing list, then it was yep. full. So yes, yep. that is that so is join the mailing list. So so it's pretty much if you got to be on the mailing list to go to the book club, it's not even going to be announced to the public. Yeah, completely free, but sells out quickly. All right, Scotty. Until the next time, my friend. Can't wait. It's been amazing, Rob. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching and or sign up for a free coaching discovery session, check us out at roborman.com. That's also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode, a few free EMR charting templates, a new thing we've got. There you can also sign up for our newsletter and we've got a few other surprises on the site. You might say, well, what are those surprises? Well, they're surprises. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.